All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Today we have on Don Barden. Don, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, John. I appreciate you having me. I love your show. love everything you're doing, and um, I'm just so grateful to be here. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you here. So you know, a friend of mine, Terry, introduced us, and she started telling me about this incredible book. So first of all, guys, I want to share with you the premise behind this, and you understand exactly why Don is here. And you were actually funded. You have a long career in business, which I'll share here in a second, but you were funded actually by uh, Wall Street to write a paper that turned into what you're doing now. And is there a common thread, a secret sauce, something that existed that, you know, between the leaders in sales and marketing and just all these other spheres of influence that truly is unlocking their greatness and their impact and their influence. And man, you were on a mission. It also comes from a faith place also was behind this, even though you were kind of working in the, you know, the world of wall street and, so everybody, uh, just a little background, uh, Don today just sold his company a few months ago. He's a speaker, author, professor, travels all over the world. He was just sharing with me. He's doing a lot of work with the guys coming out of special forces, training the Green Berets and the Army to the police forces, to businesses around the world. Um, you've been CEO of a number of companies. The last one that you just sold was 3CI. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, and so background in financial services, consulting, technical talent placement, TV, radio. You're a classically trained economist. I'm an unclassically trained economist, which meant I read a book once. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Anyway, and you've written this book called The Perfect Plan. But here's what I'd like to do before we get into this, because everybody listening, we're going to be talking about some of the keys and why is it important to bring a servant leadership into what you do. How do we make better decisions? And what is that kind of that secret formula of those elite 1%? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, but before we dive into all that, Don, I'd love for you to share a little bit about, you know, your background and your journey up to this point. Wow. Oh, thank you, John. I appreciate that. First of all, I want to clarify one thing. I'm sure half the audience just got the EBGBs and started having cold sweats, flashing back to college, thinking about economy uh, or economics. Uh, so I always <laughs> want to be real clear. I am a classically trained economist. But I like to refer to myself as a frustrated anthropologist, which means I've always cared about why people make the decisions they do and what makes people tick and move forward. Then I cared about interest rates and yield curves and things like that, because really that stuff's boring. Um, but it's yesterday's news. You know, a lot of my peers in economics uh, love to talk about what happened yesterday or last week and how they predicted it. Although you can never find where they did predict it. They love to talk about that. But I always had this thing about people and the humanity and the heart of people and what made them tick and how we could explore this beautiful thing called humanity. And what was it about humanity that made us who we were? And I used economics as a vehicle to help us get there because I think the economy and economics as a whole is just a reflection of who we are as humans. So I didn't want to scare anybody before we got started. So I'm really a frustrated anthropologist who cares about the humanity of us all. Yeah, well, you know, that's a a good distinction because it's like, you know, I'm an engineer and engineering background and, you know, there's engineers that are forward looking and there's a lot of engineers and financial people. My analogy is they sit on the back of the boat and they can tell you everything that happened. 
But if right. you try to put them up in the pilot house to actually figure out how to work with our team and our organization and, you know, set a course that's really going to be high impact, there's a small select group that kind of have that skill. And that's what you do. Yep. You like to be up in the pilot house, helping people, equipping and empowering people so that they can actually move forward. So eventually you can leave the pilot house and then they can continue their journey from a better place. Oh, 100% right. And I'm a word guy. I love words and where words come from and what they mean. And what you just described, sitting on the back of the boat looking backwards, that's actually the root word for fundamentalism. No uh, kidding. So, yeah, a fundamentalist in Greek, Latin, and all that, when you look back, it means those who look back and those who don't want to change. They want to talk about the past. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing because we learned from the past, but uh, that's really where that root word uh, comes from. You just described uh, fundamentalism. And that's also a mindset. That's also something else yeah. we're going to be talking about is mindset today, because that yeah. really is kind of this umbrella over a lot of these things, isn't it? Yeah, 100 percent. You know, if you believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today, then you can start with a mindset that allows you to approach this great thing of humanity with a different perspective. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be ups and downs and highs and lows and joys and terrors. All that stuff happens. But uh, just the mindset of knowing that every day gets better is part of really who we are as a core. Now, take me back. I'd like you to kind of go back a little bit and kind of walk me through just to get to know you a little bit. Um, you know, what's been your kind of journey up to today where this is really such a focus for you? Well, uh, I just had that question this morning from someone else, and I told him the easiest way for me to answer that is not answer it, but for you to go on Netflix, download the movie Forrest Gump, and just watch that. Uh, that's my life story is, is really Forrest Gump, because although I didn't do some of the things that he did, it's just my life has been a series of interesting events that when glued together, uh, it's just been an amazing thing. I don't know how I got there, but I was observant uh, during the process. But um, no, really, thank you for asking. I spent 25 years working uh, on Wall Street and for Wall Street firms, commuted to work in New York and Boston and uh, London on a very, very regular, almost daily basis sometimes. But I had the most wonderful career working with some really great people. Uh, I've always lived in Atlanta where I live now. So I just, you know, Bob, I joked with someone uh, recently, Bob Hope, the comedian once said, when you die, it doesn't matter if you're going to heaven or hell, you still got to go to Atlanta first. So because of the airport system here in Atlanta, I've been able to kind of live and travel all over the world and do some really cool things. But yeah, I spent 25 years on Wall Street and working for different firms there. Uh, had a really formative career. Uh, worked my way up from the bottom and uh, really had some interesting and insightful you know, things happen. I got to meet some really, really cool people. Left there, started my own firms, uh, bought and sold several companies over the past probably decade. And now while I'm still doing that, the organization has become very self-managed. Uh, everybody's very much on point on the team. And we're going forward, which allows me to go out and do my unique ability. And that's to travel around the world and teach now. And I teach about the perfect plan, what you mentioned earlier. And that was a, a study that was funded probably 20 years ago now, about what it was that these great people around the world were doing different. These are leaders who were so radically different, they weren't even on the measurable scale from other people. And uh, we had a theory about them. We wanted to know what it was, and we wanted to be able to scale and replicate it. So I uh, wrote a paper on it, and then that paper advanced, and it turned into a doctoral study. And I got to spend about five years really, really going deep into these elite leaders around the world and seeing what it was that they did differently, their mindset, and how they approach people. And ultimately, we were able to figure that out. We were able to self-inject it, as every mad scientist would, and uh, continue to do great things with it. But now I'm honored because I literally fly around the world uh, on a regular basis 
talking to people about the perfect plan and what it is that these people did different and how the heart and the head and the mindset all align and what it means. Well, and you talk about, you know, this whole thing started out as this hypothesis and you're laying, you're on the beach at Amelia Island, 4th of July yep. fireworks are going on. You started scribbling some stuff down on some paper, some napkins. And what was that hypothesis you had done? Well, cool. Thank you for asking because nobody ever remembers that part. So thank you. <laughs> you actually read the book. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> no, um, you know, that was an incredible moment. I was just sitting there. And I've always been a Christian. I've always had strong faith, been tested and screw things up just like everybody does. So trust me, believe me, I can screw up as good as anything, anybody, anywhere. But yeah, you know, we, from a faith I, I think we're, we might all be equally gifted with that. <laughs> yeah, that is something you're born with. But I had this idea there and it just hit me. And the idea, which was ultimately rejected, by the way. So the book was not the original hypothesis. But what we did was we ran that original hypothesis at the same time we ran the second hypothesis, which turned into the book, or at least the book that we're talking about, The Perfect Plan. But the original hypothesis is the one that got me the most excited. And I was just sitting there one day, and it just hit me. I said, look, we've got to start looking at our faith as Christians, as adults. I think that we do a really good job helping little children grasp the morality play of the Bible, grasp the character of the Bible, grasp the salvation and the story behind it. But we tend to teach little kids the way little kids are taught. And then as we become adults, we don't really rethink that and say, okay, that storyline worked really good for a five-year-old or a 10-year-old singing Sunday school songs. But as an adult, what am I getting out of this? And I used to joke that, you know, we have this image of Noah's Ark with the elephant sticking his head out the window with a big smile on his face. And I said, you know, do you realize how, as an adult, how bad that, that place must have smelled? I mean, good Lord, a big boat with nothing but animals in it for 30 days, that would have been horrible. And so I started kind of laughing and thinking about the Bible as an adult. And then it hit me. And I had this hypothesis, this thing that kind of just, whoom, came into me. And that was that, we do the same thing when we're looking at the story of Jesus. And if you think about the Jesus story, the Christ story, and then you think about what is accomplished over the past 2,000 years, which is basically, number one, survive. So this is a storyline that survived for 2,000 years. And number two, there's one-third global market share. So you look at this from a business perspective and go, God, we don't have anything close. Even Apple and Microsoft and Nobody even dreams of existing 2,000 years with one-third global market share. So this is a phenomenon as an adult that's bigger than the Sunday school stories that we hear. Regardless of what your heart is telling you, let's look at this thing. And then I started thinking about the story of Jesus with the apostles, which is really what launched the way we live and think and breathe today as Christians. And I started thinking about it. And I said, man, you know, we read these Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read the Palladian texts that come after that. And then read a couple of little other storylines that were thrown in there near the end. But at the end of the day, Jesus was with these guys, his team, for about three years. And then right. he left them. What did he teach these people in three years that would allow them to carry a story and change the way people think about everything for the next 2,000 years? It has to be more than parables and magic tricks and, you know, these things that were going on. What was it? So my original hypothesis, to get back to the story, was that I believe that the apostles of Jesus Christ had a marketing plan, that when Jesus was with them, that he didn't just say, okay, guys, I got to go. Remember all the cool stories I told you. Best of luck. See ya. That he actually, in those stories and in the text that we have, taught them something deeper. 
So my idea was let's take Sunday school out of our head. Let's take the childhood stories out of our head. Let's reapproach the Bible from an adult's perspective and from a business perspective. How do you get one third global market share over 2000 years from a three year impact moment, you know? And so my theory was that we could reverse engineer the Bible and figure out what it was that was taught deeper than the stories, the character, the things that were happening, the faith that was really, really there. And could we unravel some things that we might not know? And I'm not talking about looking for hidden messages. I'm just talking about looking at the Bible as an adult and saying, okay, what can we do to approach this differently? And then how do we apply those messages to today? And think about that in the context of, you know, back then, these men have been discipled by Jesus for three years. They've seen the incredible faith that he has, the relationship with the Father, the miracles that he has. And then at the end, right? He said to them, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. But the Father also says in Ephesians that he's above us, he's near us, but he's also enthroned in us. So, you know, we are walking around with the Trinity enthroned in us when we tap into that. What we can accomplish in this world from God's perspective is, I believe, truly unlimited. When we can accept that, that relationship, that promise, and, you know, that's a mindset, that's a faith. But anyway, I I wanted to put that in there because I completely agree with you. But could you imagine these guys going, did he just say we can do what he did and even more than that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And to use your military terms, uh, they were a bunch of numbnuts because in a way they didn't exactly do it. It's like you would think everything they saw, they would get it right. But they still struggled. They still went through it because they were human. You know, they had it inside of them, but they were also human and they struggled with this. And and again, we look back with this Sunday school mentality and say, oh, well, why didn't they know? Why didn't they know? Well, no, step back a minute. How many people have come into your life that were just wow and yet you didn't learn from it, you know, or you didn't do it. Or even, I'm not sure when this show is going to air, but yesterday was a Super Bowl. Watching Tom Brady win his sixth uh, Super Bowl is like, what a mindset, what a belief system. And, and listening to how he approached and talked, whether you're a hater or a lover of Tom Brady, it doesn't matter. You got to admire the guy, right? But what did we learn from that? Well, a lot of people watched that, walked away, didn't learn a darn thing. They just thought it was a football game. But there's a lot of things we can learn in there to make us better leaders and better people, you know, from it. So although, you know, they're nowhere near the same spectrum of universal impact, I can totally see these apostles going, yeah, I get it. But what about this or what about that? I mean, they had to kind of come to their own, even though that he was in them, even though that these incredible things were eyewitnessed by them. They were still human. They still had to make decisions and they still had to to learn and grow. So but that was my theory that there was something to it. But here's the interesting thing. That was rejected. And the reason it was rejected was that there's no way that Wall Street could scale it or profit from it. And I said, OK, OK, I get that. You mean your first said, hypothesis? My first hypothesis, yeah. The apostles of Jesus Christ had a marketing plan. OK. And that we it. could learn from that. And okay. we should reverse engineer the Bible as adults, thinking about it as adults, get Sunday school out of our head. And then what could we learn you know, from that? to do it. And I'll never get talking to my CEO about it. And he said, that might be one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. And if you could pull this off, it'll be great. And he said, you might really change the way people think about everything. And and he just was like flourishing this great, you know, like reinforcement of my theory. And um, then I said, okay, great. So you're going to sign off. We can study it. And, and he just laughed and goes, Oh no, I'm not going to pay for that. <laughs> I was like, I was so defeated. 
I said, what do you mean you're not going to pay for it? And he said, I can't pay for something that we can't scale and profit from. He said, I think it's great. I think you're onto something, but that's not how I use shareholders' money. Uh, this is not what we do, but I can't wait to read it one day. And I laughed and said, well, if you don't pay for it, you're not going to read it because it's not going to happen. I mean, I don't know how we can do this. And he said, well, you're onto something. Just keep thinking about it. So I went back a couple of weeks later and I said, okay, there is part B to this discussion. I said, I get to travel all over the world working in some really, really cool deals with some really, really awesome people. And it is so cool. And I'm so grateful. And it's just amazing that you'll call and send me to China or India or Mexico or Europe or whatever. And I'm happy to go. But here's a weird thing I started noticing. And it does tie back. I started noticing, and this is before LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, there was barely, we barely got cell phones in. There was no connectivity in the world. There was no social media. There was nothing to make you connected to somebody on the other side of the world like we have today. And I said, but here's the deal. I said, because of who we are and the deals that we're working on, when I get sent to another part of the world, I've started to notice that if you take out language and you take out culture, that the people I'm talking to, which happen to be all 18 performers, these are the best and the brightest culture this country has to offer us. When I go in there and meet these people, it's a wonderful experience. But then you send me to another part of the world, and even though there's no connectivity whatsoever, I'm going on to the next deal. I swear it's the same person from the last deal. And I said, it's got to be so predictable that I know what they're going to say before they say it, but I can't get my hands around this. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I believe that these elite people around the world that we work with, even though they have no connectivity whatsoever with each other, I believe that there's some secret thing or some formula or something that they're doing that makes them who they are. In fact, not only do I believe it, I see it because I feel it because these people are not connected. They don't know each other. We're in different countries, different languages, different culture. And I swear I'm watching a rerun of a movie. It's the same thing over and over and over. So there's something about these elite people that make them different. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, hey, if you can prove that, I'll pay for it. If you can prove that, I will go at it like there's no tomorrow. Because if you can take a secret sauce of what these top performers and leaders do, and we can inject that, then we can change the dynamic of our culture and our people. And he said, I'm all over it. And I said, okay, so I'm good to go. And he said, yeah. So he fully funded the study. And five years afterwards, we had the first rendition of what we now call the perfect plan. But here's the sneaky part, John. So I couldn't get this first theory out of my head that apostles of Jesus Christ had a marketing plan. So I was able to run the real story that they wanted us to study, you know, the secret sauce of these elite leaders. But at the same time, I also ran the original study and I kept them apart from each other. I did not allow the controlled variables, to use a scientific term, to be polluted. In other words, nobody talked to each other. So the people that were studying the apostles' mission were different from the people that were studying today's elite leaders' mission and what they did. And I kept the studies completely separate. But here was the fascinating thing. When we were done, we sat down and we literally flipped the two studies over and looked at them side by side, and they were the exact same thing. It turns out that the methodology that the apostles used, that Christ himself used, and the way he spoke to people, what he did, was exactly the same as what these elite performers around the world were doing today. And the formulas were exactly the same. The context, the cadence, the way they spoke, everything was exactly the same. So we were able to take the new study, cross-reference it back, and actually use it to validate it, to say, look, here's what the world's elite leaders do differently. Here's their mindset. Here's how they lead. Here's how they talk. Here's the formula that they follow. And oh, by the way, 
it worked 2,000 years ago, and they're still around talking about this. So it turns out that what these elite leaders were doing today is exactly what Jesus taught the apostles to do 2,000 years ago. Now, let me put an asterisk by this. It does not mean that all these elite leaders we studied were Christians or you know Jewish or were in that same type of faith. They were literally all over the world. But the methodologies of what they were doing and the mindset that they had was exactly that of the apostles and what they want to do. Different mission, but the exact same methodology and how they approached it. And how would you describe that mindset, Don? Um, number one, the big reveal to the book, so if somebody wants to read the book or do it, the big reveal is that they were there to serve others before themselves, that they really did put other people's lives before themselves, uh, figuratively and professionally, uh, that they cared about other people. And because of that, they led with their heart. And everyone had a mission. Everyone had a job. Everyone had a skill. Everyone has a unique ability. Everyone has a gift. But if you can take that gift, that ability that you have, and go out there and serve other people with it, and honestly try to make somebody else's day today better than yesterday, to touch someone, to make their life better, they end up following the same sequence of events, the same way of communicating, the same everything. So the mission is literally to serve other people, to put other people first. But it doesn't mean it's passive. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that you're just going to get run over. It's just the opposite. Some of these people were pretty darn tough, but they put other people first. And that ultimately is the Christ message. You're here to help other people. And, you know, what you're going to do to other people is what how you're going to be treated. And the whole story behind it fits perfectly and beautifully within it. They were exactly the same thing. Well, yeah, and you talk about, I think it's a little bit counterintuitive to our culture, but what you're saying is if people have this mindset where they're going to give forward without expectation of things coming back to them in return, because that's what servants do, it's those people that are actually operating in that mode that are most successful have the biggest results. Is that fair? Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But just like everything, because I know you used to be a flyer, and I work a lot with the Army Rangers and some other people with incredibly high skill sets, it's not blind ambition. There is a effort and a thought behind it. So whatever you're here to do, go do it. Whatever it is that you can be or become, be the best. And it doesn't matter if you're cleaning buildings at night or you're a Wall Street CEO. It does not matter. Whatever you're there to do, do it. But do it in a way that you're making somebody else's life better and that you're accomplishing the mission, which means you've got to be the best at whatever it is that you do. So be the best at what you do. Put all of your focus into training. Wake up and run to work every day, but run to work with these gifts so that you can serve other people and make their life better. And one thing that we noticed was that when we talked to these people around the world, they never, ever gave you their career or their skill set as a description of what they did. They always talked about running to work and serving people and running to work and making somebody's lives better, their families, their teams, their customers, whoever it was. It was always about other people. Oh, yeah, I'm a dairy farmer. Or, oh, yeah, I make tortillas in Mexico. Or, oh, yeah, I'm a fighter pilot. Yeah, it, it, The career became the oh, yeah part of the conversation and how they ultimately defined themselves. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. When you factor in all the hours it takes to read a single book, it's really an investment. Or if you're like John and listen to audiobooks, even at 1.5 speed, that's even more time. I just downloaded Eric Metaxas' Bonhoeffer on Audible, and it's almost a 23-hour-long book. Well, John and I are big fans of a book summary service called Blinkist. 
Blinkist has a library of more than 2,500 of the top books on the market. Most of them can be read in less than 15 minutes. So imagine taking all the key thoughts and stories of a book and distilling it down into a 15-minute read. That's what Blinkist does. Whether you're interested in leadership, marketing, entrepreneurship, personal development, sales, management, motivation, psychology, economics, finance, self-help, even marriage, parenting, history, and more, Blinkist has something for just about everyone. If you click the link embedded in the summary of this MP3 or go to eternalleadership.com slash blink, that's eternalleadership.com slash blink, you can try them for a seven-day free trial. And if you subscribe by clicking that affiliate link, it's a great way to help get a great service and help support the cost of editing and hosting this podcast. So go to eternalleadership.com slash blink to check out Blinkist. Thanks. So when you're talking and working with people, you know, if you're talking about the mindsets, the beliefs, you talk about the different questions you have to ask yourself, what are some of the practical things to start moving in toward what you just described? Because I'm guessing sure. a lot of people listening, that's not how they feel about work. Uh, you know, you and I are sitting here, it's a Monday morning as we're recording this. There's probably a lot of people last night that were kind of right. filled with dread or anxiety thinking about the week ahead. Sure. And that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus faced dread and anxiety. I mean, if you look at him, you know, in Gethsemane and then things beforehand, um, he was second guessing the deal. You know, <laughs> he was like, uh, really, really? Is this what you want me to do? So there's nothing wrong with second guessing things. But you go back to your mission and what you're here to do. So what we do and what I like to talk to people most about is when you're waking up every day and you say to yourself, OK, what is it that I'm here to do? What am I trying to accomplish here? It is more important. And this I always tell people write down. It is more important to understand it than it is to know it. And when I'm teaching class, my most heartfelt award that I've ever received was a favorite professor. And I was so excited about this. I won favorite professor award. And my wife kind of humbled me. She said, don't get so cocky about this. And I said, why? I said, you know, don't you think I'm a good professor and I have entertainment value and, you know, people really get it. And my wife said, and you only give A's. And that's true. I only give A's in class. So you take my class, you get an A no matter what. And the reason I give people an A is an A is a reflection of knowledge. It's not a reflection of understanding. I care more about people understanding what the subject is than I care about them knowing what the subject is. So as people face in front of them, what happens, especially when they go through our training and we talk to people is the very first thing I want you to do is understand what we're there to talk about. So we work through the science of decision-making processes, why people make the decisions they do. Mm. And think about how cool a leadership tool that is. If you can look at people that are there, that you're, you're on the team or your family, or whatever. And if you knew the decisions they were going to make before they make it, what an incredible unfair advantage you would have. But what we teach people is, and this is part of that mindset, the worst thing you can do is to understand people's decision-making process for personal gain. You actually reverse it and you say, okay, I know what this person's decision is going to be on this. How can I respect them for this? How can I treat them at the highest level so that that decision is honored and respected in a way that helps make them a better person? And I'm always quoting the golden rule as one of the most misquoted things in history. You know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's a terribly selfish thing. Yeah, because what if I don't mind kind of being a jerk or I'm kind of an right. angry dude? So I don't mind people that are showing up and they're a bit crunchy or thorny. But you know what? That, yeah. <laughs> that, so that's exactly. a standard that comes from self. 
which yeah. applied across the culture could actually lead to some problems. Oh, absolutely. And if you go back to the original translation of that, and, you know, English is so difficult. And we translate things in a way that we can understand it. We create rhyme so kids can memorize it. But if you keep that same cadence and the same rhyming of that, do unto others, they have them do unto you. And you really wrote it in the context of what that was meant to be. It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's do unto others as they would have you do unto them. In other words, treat people the way they want to be treated. So we tell people, look, if you're going to understand the decision-making process, then you can respect people. And then you can treat them the way they want to be treated. And that in itself is serving others. And you are serving them. You're making their life better. And what happens from a leadership perspective is when you surround yourself with people who know that you care about them, they know that your mindset is to make their life better and treat them the way they want to be treated. Then all of a sudden, you've got a following of people that will move mountains for you because you're not expecting them to be something God didn't make them to be or what you think they should be. You're letting them be themselves. Now, let me put another asterisk beside this. That doesn't mean that somebody cannot be responsible for their actions and their deeds. You know, they have to be good. They have to train. They have to, for example, when you were flying, you know, the most important person in a flight isn't necessarily the pilot as much as the mechanics who put the plane together, right? You can't just sit there and say, well, I'm not going to command excellence out of my mechanics. I'm going to let them just be how they want to be. No, nobody ever get to that point. So you can command excellence and still treat people the way they want to be treated. But when everybody's on the same mission, they have this desire for excellence and they have this desire to be the best they can be, which means that you're going to treat people in a way that allows them to be respected. They in turn will respect you and they will be the best that they can be. So it starts building upon itself pretty quickly. So let me ask you a question. And if this isn't the right question, help me uh, kind of reframe it. Okay. Okay. Sure. So as a leader, right. And we define, I know you've done a lot of work with John Maxwell, right? Somebody who has yep. a positive influence over at least one other person. So I really see everybody, wherever you're at, you have a, a leadership role, mm-hmm. but how do we understand um, maybe our own decision-making process and others And then if we are in a leadership role and we see that somebody's decision-making process is not getting them the personal or professional results that are in their best interest, how do we help maybe shape people so their decision-making process improves? Is that, there's probably a lot there, but is that the right question to be asking? Yeah, yeah, 100%, yes. I think it's a big question with big answers uh, too, uh, maybe more than what we can do, but I think the first thing a leader needs to do is put people on the team where they are going to be the best they can be, and it's the right fit for them. In a corporate environment, I work with people all the time where they say, well, my team's just not clicking or it's not working. And then you look at it and you say, why is this person on the team? And I'm not saying they're a bad person. It's just they've got these gifts and skills that are different from what the team needs right now. And then the the leader always comes back and says, but they were such a nice person and they really needed a job. And I really wanted to hope it was going to work. And I'm like, great. So in order to help somebody, you put them in a position that they weren't wired to do. That it's not their gift. It's not their unique ability. And just because you thought you were helping them out. So the first role, I guess. So that doesn't really help them out, actually, when you. (laughs) Yeah, it hurts them. It puts them in a position where they're not allowed to thrive. And I do believe we've all been given gifts by God. And that gift could be a variety of different things. And when you find that, when you're working in that zone, you are free to be you. And when you're that way, that's when you see exponential growth. That's when you see people doing things that you just couldn't imagine 
you know, could ever be done before. And uh, from a leadership perspective, when you try to squeeze people in, because you think you're doing the right thing for them, actually, you might be hurting them pretty bad. So what, first thing the thing you do is look at your team and say, OK, how are we going to maximize the team? Well, make sure you got the right people on the team. You know, that's number one. Make sure you got the right people on the team, which means that you've got to look at a lot of different things. You've got to look beyond yourself and be willing to say, OK, I really like this person, but they're not going to be the right thing for the team or I like them, but they don't have the skill set that we need. So we're going to look for something else. And what I've always done is when we find somebody who is so unique and so good that we want to hire them, even though they don't fit, we don't hire them, but we call everybody we know who we think they might be a good fit and help them along, help them in their career. So you can help people by not bringing them onto your team, but helping them find the right team. And that to me is the initial part of leadership. And again, go back to the Christ model. You know, what did Christ do? He had the 12 guys, you know, he accepted an eight and a half percent turnover rate, you know, one out of the 12 didn't work out, you know, and he knew it. And that was okay. And he said, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of risk, but if it's not the way it's going to be, it's going to self-correct and work its way out. So he had a 92% um, hit rate, if you want to look at it like that, for people on his team, you know, 11 out of the 12 that really knocked the ball out of the park and made great things happen, took risk on the marginal guy and didn't work out too well for us in the storyline. But without that guy, we wouldn't have today. We wouldn't have the story that we had. And of course, I'm talking about Judas. So you got to be willing to take a little bit of risk, but basically you only want the right people on your team. And then you serve them, you help them make the right decisions, you guide them, and they will do things greater than what you ever thought you could do. Yeah. And now in that context, how do you start is you're kind of, I mean, this is, you're talking about, you know, a decision-making process, looking at people, not only just putting the team together, but then what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. What is kind of that model for that, you know, good decision-making? Wow. Okay. Well, it's really interesting. Um, decision-making is actually the form of an argument. If you want to get technical, uh, when you're trying to make a decision between one thing or another, just to take it to the simplest form, you're in an argument. Now you might be in an argument with yourself. You might be in an argument with a salesperson. You might be in an argument with, you know, whatever, but, uh, it doesn't mean it's violent. It doesn't mean there's a fist fight. It just means that there's two opposing decisions. And so you've got to be able to look at it and say, okay, what's happening here? I've got to make a decision here to move forward. And the scientific elements behind the decision-making process are pretty simple. It's evidence plus reasoning equals conclusion. In other words, you're going to look at the evidence or the facts. Then you're going to look at the reasoning or the emotions, the motive behind it. And then you're going to make a decision. But the problem is that people get real sterile when they think it's 50-50. They think that 50% of a decision should be based on the facts, 50% should be based on emotion, and then we just all move ahead. Reality is the exact opposite. In today's world, 85% of a decision is based on emotion and how they feel about you as a leader or as a person. Only 15% of a decision is based on facts. Now, that does not mean that people don't want to know the facts or that they're stupid. All that means is they only need 15% of the facts to outsource success to you, to follow you. In other words, they don't want to know what you know. They just want to know enough to know that you do know so they can follow you. And then once they know that, they really want to feel good about you. So it's really about that emotional connection that leaders make with people, which is based almost exclusively on trust. That's going to drive the decision-making process. The 15% that's based around the facts, that's just what they need to know in order to say, I will follow you. I met with plenty of doctors. I met with one group at Harvard Med one time, and they were saying, look, you know, the worst thing a doctor can do is talk. You know, you just need to put your arm around the patient. You need to let them know that you're there and that you've got them and you're going to take care of them. 
if they wanted to know everything you knew, they would go to medical school. So the worst thing you can do is sit down and start drawing all these graphs about what you know, your heart surgery is going to look like. No. Simplify it and let them know they can trust you. They will outsource success to you, and they will follow you. And that's what it's all about. So 85% of the decision-making process is based on emotion. 15% is based on the fact. But here's a little side note, and I think this is critical. And in a way, this pains me. And for me and you both, when this podcast is over with today, if you went back and polled every single person that was listening to it, 10 minutes after the podcast was over, what percentage do you, John, think that they're going to remember about today's lectures? Oh, they might remember one or two little nuggets, best case scenario. Yeah, exactly right. And those one or two little nuggets will equate to about 6%. So people only remember 6% of what you say to them 10 minutes after you've left them. But here's the cool part. They will remember 100% about how they felt about you forever. So you think about this. As leaders, we go out there and want to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. They're not going to remember that. What they're going to remember is, how did I feel about you? And can I trust you? In leadership, that's the single most important part. And again, you look at the Gospels. You look at it from a Christ perspective. If you look at a three-year period and realize we condensed it to a couple hundred pages, you know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's not a whole lot, even if it was just three years. And so there had to be more than that. But that was their 6%. And that was a 6% that they felt that was most important to move the story forward and affect everybody else. But think about the emotions that people have when they study it and when they look at it and they say, wow, this really touched me. Or the story of the uh, prodigal son, that really made something to me. Or the Lazarus story. Everybody has their favorite story. Well, what they're saying is that that was my favorite story because, one, I remembered it. But mostly but that was the emotional connection behind it. Therefore, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll follow that. And that's the same for leadership today. What's that 6% going to be? Why do they want to follow you? They're going to follow you because they trust you and they're emotionally attached to you. Oh, man, that's so good. And hey, I want to, you know, as uh, I wish we had a little bit more time, but there's a question I've been dying to ask you that builds on this, right? You know, these right. elite 1% that you've studied, both both in the, in the Gospels and also currently, what was that one thread, or if there was one, that you found that wove through these folks that was like their secret formula? Sure. Well, there really is a secret formula. The formula is based on opening up every conversation with what I think is the answer to your question, and I know is the answer to your question, is what's the big thing, you know, the big whammy? It's everything that they do is based on a heart of gratitude. It's not just, I'm going to put other people first. It is, I am grateful for the opportunity to put other people first. I'm grateful for the opportunity to run to work to serve these people. I'm grateful for everything. So gratitude was the overwhelming thing that was there. And and that just established everything. But that's also how they opened up every conversation. So the formula was gratification, education, and ease of business. In other words, they opened up every conversation, every email, every voicemail, every anything. If it was about connecting with another person, it opened up with an attitude of gratitude. And it was real. It was sincere. It was heartfelt. It wasn't just passive. You know, it was a real thing. So they opened up every conversation with an attitude of gratitude. But then they clearly went into what it is that we're going to talk about. That's the education. Three things or less, real short and sweet. Follow me. Here's what we need to accomplish. But then the third thing was this incredible relief of knowing that it was easy. 
that you weren't there to make their life more complicated or more chaotic. You were brought into their life to make their life easier so that we could all accomplish whatever the mission was together. And within your unique abilities, you will find fulfillment and you will find grace and your life will be better tomorrow than it is today. So I guess the answer to your question is it's all about gratitude, a grateful heart. But you're grateful to serve other people. Well, how do you do it? Well, you open up every conversation with a sincere moment of appreciation of gratitude. Clearly educate them, just two or three things or less, on what you want to accomplish. But then you're there to make their life easier. If you follow that methodology, however you measure yourself will double you know, overnight. But then as you got into more of the belief systems, and I know we, we don't have time for this, but the belief, belief was, number one, that you're there to create and not compete. None of these people were competitive. No, they wanted to be the best they could be, but not to the extent that someone else lost. So it was about being creative first. It was about exceeding expectations. And then most importantly, as you mentioned before, and I'm so grateful that you did that, John, it's really about putting other people first and saying to yourself, I'm going to give forward without any expectation of anything in return. And if you have those things and there's a collision of the three promises and three beliefs, gratification, education, ease of business and all, if, when that comes across, people will follow you to the end of the world. Because you're there for them. You're not there for yourself. And when that comes across and there's gratitude on top of it, man, it's life changing. Well, yeah. And when you step into that place of gratitude, man, that is such a positive, like a massive impact also just on your mindset. I think, you know, you talked about what people might remember. Hopefully that's the one thing maybe you take away. You can read the book, which I really recommend. But what if you just start approaching that next conversation with your spouse? Maybe you're having a difficult relationship, that coworker that's not always easiest to work with, your boss, and you find something to be just grateful about the situation or where you're at, why God has you there. You know, use an affirmation, which is not flattery, yeah. but tell them something sincerely that you either appreciate or has been meaningful to you or that you thank them about. Right. And be specific. But I think you're right. If people can just start bringing gratitude. I remember when my our we've always done this with our boys when they start to get kind of negative and complaining about different things. Uh, we'll sit there around the table and say, OK, everybody, we're going to go around the table and just say, what are three things that you're grateful for? And you know what? When you're kind of in a funk and life's a yeah. little bit tough, it's sometimes even just hard to come up with that. My son will be, I'm grateful for baseball and my dog and not my brother, but, you know, Xbox. I'm like, well, hey, that's a good start, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a first world gratitude right there. That's good. <laughs> right. But you know what? Then we can start building on that because it's just starting to kind of change that mindset toward actually instead of dwelling, which I know is my habit oftentimes, on kind of the negative and this narrative that I tell myself based on not the inaccurate understanding of the facts, but my view of the facts based on everything that's in my trunk, so to speak, right? But it starts to move us toward a more accurate understanding of maybe them understanding them, where they're coming from, why they made that decision, why they reacted that way in a situation, which maybe I didn't like, but you know what? We all have so much back history, we yeah. don't know what is maybe causing somebody to show up that way. And it could be something really significant and meaningful in their life that maybe you triggered and you didn't even know it. But yeah, so that gratitude, I think, is a powerful element of starting to shift our mindset toward other people and toward really having a servant heart. 
Oh, you nailed it. You are 100% right. And I know we're running out of time, and I can feel like I've talked to you forever about this. But again, take this back from a Christian and a faith-based perspective and go back and look at how Jesus opened up every prayer. He would open up his prayers to, to his Father, to God, by saying, God, thank you. I praise you. I thank you. You know, Whatever it is, just thank you for allowing me to have this opportunity to do it. And then he would move into, okay, here's what I'm thinking. You know, Can you help me out on this? <laughs> and then he would say, ultimately, at the end, the ease of business, the relief. He would say, your will be done. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. I'm going to make this easy. I'm not going to argue with you, in other words. So Christ himself opened up everything with that attitude of gratitude and appreciation, even even in his prayers. And there was a cool thing probably about 25 years ago. An actor named Bruce Marciano played Jesus in the movie Matthew, and he approached it for the first time ever differently. And he said, you know, you got all these Cecil B. DeMille versions of Jesus. You know, he called it the Jesus, I love you, but don't touch me, Jesus. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed European Jesus, which is weird, if you ask me, um, from a first, <laughs> a first century Palestinian Jew to that. However you get there, it's fine. But anyway, so he said that there was that Jesus, that Cecil B. DeMille, Ben-Hur type thing where, you know, everything was holy and don't touch you. He said, there's no way that would have worked. There's no way Jesus would have been able to go in and change the world and love people the way he did and not get dirty and not get in there. And here's one thing I'll, I'll got to play on your listeners' minds. Um, if you go back and look at the way he played Jesus when he healed a blind man. In this story in Matthew, if you read it literally, he says, you know, Jesus touched him, put his hands on his eyes. The man opened his eyes and he could see, the blind man could see. And Jesus said, go forth now, to the temple and worship as Moses taught you to do. Well, again, going back to the Sunday school version, I always had this, you know, Charlton Heston, uh, now you've been healed, go forth and worship as Moses would have told you to do. Bruce looked at it and goes, there's no way. Now, we're going to say it exactly the same way, but we're going to act it with a heart of gratitude. We're going to act it with a heart of love. We're going to act it the way a real leader at the time would have done that. And if you think about that, the first thing that blind man would have seen would have been Jesus's face. Mm. So imagine if Jesus was real stern and go forth, you know, kind of the old style, fundamentalist way of looking at it. Right. That would have been horrifying. You know, is that the first thing you want the guy to see? Well, when Bruce did it, he said the exact same words. But he, the blind man opens his eyes and he sees Bruce playing Jesus and he is smiling ear to ear. Mm. And it is the most loving, warm thing and the blind man, they don't change any of the narrative from the book. They, it is exact quotation from the NIV version of the book of Matthew. The blind man starts laughing and he literally tackles Jesus. He's so full of joy. He's laughing because he can finally see. He tackles Jesus and knocks him down. Bruce is rolling on the ground with him and he holds his face in his hands and he's laughing. He says, now go forth, go to the temple, go worship like Moses told you you could do. And there was just joy and there were tears in their eyes. And I remember when I saw that, I thought, that's the guy they followed. That's the guy I want to follow. That's the guy I want to be like. I want to be that guy. And so it's not that Jesus says, I'm holy, don't touch me, Jesus. It was a Jesus who was laughing, who was smiling, who was crying. But more importantly, he was full of gratitude for the people. Even when he healed them and, and cured them, he didn't just give them the, you know, be thou whatever. It was this unbelievable embrace and a laugh. So if you go back and read the Bible, this is my thing to all leaders. Go read the Bible as an adult. Go read it as a play. Go read it and say, would he have been laughing or crying here? What if I thought about this differently? What would it be like? 
then you'll start seeing what being human and a leader is all about. And that's something that you can replicate and deploy and be the best you can be. And then train, go learn from the best, see what the others are doing out there. Because I just think that the Christ model, as a Christian, I believe it, but most importantly, it's just a person looking at it going, I want that. I want to be like that guy. And if I can touch somebody else's life, if I can serve them, if I can make their life better, then at the end, that's when I really do think Jesus is going to put his arm around you and say, you know, hey, kid, you did good. You know, he's not going to say, hey, that was a really good IPO you did or, you know, that was really, I mean, you really flipped that company. That was really awesome. No, it's going to be, hey, you smiled one day at that young girl who's having a bad day. You you hugged that guy and helped him when he had to go start another job. You did this. That's what leadership is all about. It's about accomplishing a mission with a heart of gratitude and following the steps that are out there. But we can look at the Bible as an adult and have a completely different perspective than we might have when we were seven years old in Sunday school. <laughs> Don, I'm so glad you share that. That's so awesome. Just, you know, that's what I've come to know, right? The nature of God, just as a loving father, as a friend yeah. who's on your side, who's not judging, he's there to help. And so how do people connect with you, find your book? You know, where do you live online? Sure. You know, the best thing, I still answer all my emails. I do everything I can to get back to everyone as fast as possible. Uh, just send me an email. It's Don, D-O-N, at D-W-Barden, B as in boy, A-R-D-E-N, D-W-B-A-R-D-E-N.com. Don at D-W-Barden.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on all the social media sites. But love to meet and talk to anybody. I'm here literally. I run to work every day with a smile, a heart full of gratitude that I get to serve people um, all over the world and hopefully plant a little seed that whatever that 6% is, I don't remember. I don't know what it's going to be, but whatever it is that you remember, I hope that you remember that it came with a smile and that we helped you move your mission forward. That's awesome. And uh, also the book is The Perfect Plan. You can find it on Amazon and through your website. And just as we wrap up, Don, what are just some final kind of thoughts or takeaways to leave with everybody listening? I think that the ultimate thing for leadership, especially if you want to do it from a faith-based perspective, which obviously I'm a big believer in, but leadership is about putting someone else's life before yourself. And really, it, it's figuratively and professionally. It's just how can I make somebody else's life better? And I don't care if you call it karma. I don't care what you call it, blessings. But at the end of the day, when it's all said and done and you look back at somebody, you want to be able to say that you helped make their day better. You helped make their life better, that you contributed a tiny, tiny little thing that sometimes – not sometimes, almost all the time. As a leader, you're planting seeds that you might not ever see grow. Mm -hmm. That 25 years from now, something happens and somebody remembers what you did or the smile or the smile helps somebody or the words of wisdom or the, the, the tough love, you know, redirected their life onto a unique path that they might look at it 25 years ago. They might never bump into you again. They might, but they're going to in their heart say thank you. And that's part of leadership, knowing that you're planting seeds you might never see grow. But plant the seeds, help make somebody else's life better than today. Command excellence. I mean, you've got to be the best you can. But at the same time, if you run to work to serve other people, the universe just moves things out of your way. And I really believe that's the Christ model. I love that. Run to work to serve other people. Man, Don, this is awesome. I could talk for you with you for like another hour. I appreciate your time, and I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you for having me, John. Keep doing what you're doing. People need to hear your story, your message, and, and what you're bringing in with all of your guests. So I'm grateful for you, and uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to be associated with you. And anything I can do for you or your listeners, please just let me know. I'm here for it. Yeah, man. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Thank you. 